and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on our 34th episode. And today, as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, in this episode today, we will be doing a question answer because we still have plenty of questions left over from last week. But we're also going to be giving a bit of a life update because we haven't really told you guys for a while what we have been up to. And really, in the last few weeks, a lot of things have changed. So I'm just going to let Jack take the floor and say, what's up with him? So yeah, things have been going really well. Training is good. Nutrition is good as well. I've been making great progress in the gym. This is week five of my mesocycle now, I think. So probably about three or four weeks to go until I deload again. And yeah, weight is pretty stable at the moment, around 88 looking to be around 90 in, a, in October, so that'll be exciting. Yeah, but your weight's been doing some pretty funky things lately, hasn't it? It's been like some days it just drastically drops. Yeah, I think I just need to up the food a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but can you just tell people, like, what is your strategy to that? Like, when you feel like your weight is going to be lower, what exactly do you do? So I, I can usually tell pretty well what my weight's going to do by the evening because I either, either feel quite flat and glycogen depleted or I feel quite full. And obviously when I'm feeling flat, I'll take that as an indication that I'll probably be too light the next day. And I'll usually eat like prior to bed. <laughs> Midnight snacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Literally, Jack will just like leave during the middle of the night and like he'll be gone for like 20 minutes and then come back and I'll be like, where did you go? And he's like, I, <laughs> I had a snack. <laughs> I didn't weigh enough. <laughs> and yeah, the, yeah, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but if I don't do that, then I, I just need, either need to get better at predicting it and eat more throughout the day or that's the only option really. Yeah, <laughs> and it's absolutely crazy because your, like, your energy expenditure is so high despite not really going to great lengths to actually expend that much energy. Like mm. we have a tough session, you know, five out of seven days of the week in the gym and not going to lie, we're usually there for about three hours because we just love it so much. But other than that, you're still just hitting your between like eight to 10,000 steps per day, right? But really, other than that, you're not like a construction worker or you're not super busy on your feet. Your body's just like burning through these calories. Yeah, it is quite, it's amazing how people can differ in terms of their expenditure and intake. Yeah, exactly. It's probably why you don't wear many sweaters because your body's just always <laughs> super hot. <laughs> Thanks. So, oh yes, <laughs> hot in many ways. <laughs> but yeah, so what are, what have you increased your cuz you had quite a weight drop last night, right? Yeah, so I've been averaging around 7 to 800 grams of carbs a day, around 80 fat and 250 to 275 protein and yeah, I just need to keep up that up that a bit more consistently rather than going on the lower end and yeah, that's pretty much it. But other than training and nutrition, uh, all of my clients are doing really well. I have Lockie competing season B this year, Joseph, he, who's doing uh, the Natural Olympia in November, and other clients who aren't competing this season, but are, uh, they're all doing really well as well, and a few lifestyle clients as well. And in other exciting news, Tia and I have both resigned from UQ Sport, and this is a big step forward for both of us in being independent with our income now and completely focusing on the bodybuilding dietitians, which is really awesome. Yeah, it's so amazing that we've really decided to 
pursue this full-time because originally Jack and I were planning on staying at UQ Sport until the end of the year, you know, just to have a base income while we really get our business up and running. But the truth is our business is actually going really well right now. And we are in a position we where we can be self-sustainable with the amount of clients that we currently have. So we don't necessarily need UQ Sport anymore to fall back on. So yeah, we've both resigned, which is super exciting. It's been a whole week of being sole traders, or I guess we're in a partnership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it has just been fantastic. And because we've had so much more time, you know, we've been able to give a lot more time to our business. And even in this last week alone, we've been able to take on more clientele, which has been super exciting. We've been able to make nice new team t-shirts, which we just ordered yesterday. I'm super excited for those to come through and give them to everyone on the team and and yeah Jack and I just want to put a quick message out there to say that we do have availability in our coaching services to currently take on more clients so if you would like to get in touch please don't hesitate to message us you can get in contact with us on Instagram or you can send through an email to thebodybuildingdietitians at gmail.com and yeah obviously we take on a broad spectrum of clients so it's not just competition clients as well although if you are looking to compete next year now is the perfect time to get in touch so we can prepare everything in advance but ultimately at the end of the day we are qualified dietitians so we work with absolutely anyone regardless of your goals yeah exactly and it's going to be so exciting because how to look at the dates and you know usually the icn a and b all of those shows are generally around may in for season a so that'll be next year and about 25 weeks out from then is going to be early november give or take a few weeks depending on the dates for the shows because they haven't released the exact dates here in queensland and all over australia but you know if you want to get in touch it really does pay off to work with a coach through part of your improvement season so that you can really build that relationship and really get to know one another before you dive straight into a prep. So yeah, if you are interested in any sort of coaching service or if any of your friends or family are, yeah, feel free to mention us if you'd like. Yeah, we would both greatly appreciate that. And how's everything going with you, Tierra? Yeah, so this last week is been just really really good honestly it's been one of the best weeks I've probably had in years in terms of just quality of sleep because I've been working for myself and I haven't had to do any you know very early morning opens at the gym or super late closes I've been getting like an epic night's sleep every single night and it's just made a world of difference to my energy levels throughout the day, also my training performance too and just my mood and my mental state and I just feel really, really good and ah, it's just the little things like I haven't had to eat a single meal out of Tupperware, which I can't remember... Like maybe even like probably back when Jack and I went to Thailand for a week, you know, that's the last time I didn't actually have to eat any meals out of, you know, a tub. So it's been really nice to just have home cooked meals. So 
Ah, it's just the little things. And yeah, this last week, it's just been epic, you know, speaking with more clients, creating more content. I did my first posing workshop for IFBB posing and learned a lot of cool little tricks. And yeah, as of today, on the 13th of August, I am 18 days out from starting my comp prep for next year. So I'm getting really, really excited for that. And Ah, yeah, Jack and I are also looking at booking an Airbnb to stay down in Sydney for the national show for ICN as well as the pro show. So we're going to be going down with a few clients and a few friends. So that's going to be like our first official business trip. So that'll be super fun. And yeah, in general, honestly, everything's just going really, really well right now. I couldn't ask for anything to be better. And it's all up from here. All right, so I guess we can get into some questions now. So this first one is from Ben Lloyd Fitness, and it asks, would you recommend or do you believe in doing a prep with no cardio other than steps? Yes, I would 100% believe in that. And I think that's a ideal situation, to be honest, for any competitor to be able to do their whole prep without excessive amounts of steps or other steady state cardio or hit. And yeah, the reason behind this is the more steps, sorry, the more steps and or other forms of cardio you do, the greater fatigue you put on your body and your nervous system as well. And that'll potentially take away from training. So if you, I know it's not, not everyone will be able to do zero cardio other than otherwise their food will go drastically lower but it is a ideal situation to be in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'd really, you know, you've probably heard people say this a hundred thousand times, but really try to use cardio as a tool. So try to make sure that your steps are adequate. You know, general recommendations just for good cardiovascular health are to be at at least 10,000 steps per day. So all of Jack and I's clients are have that as a minimum target for steps. But in terms of cardio, you know, it really depends on the client because it's a lot more predictable in terms of weight loss if you actually decrease calories from food and then try to keep their energy expenditure the same. So they're doing the same amount of steps per day and they're doing the same training sessions and you just take calories away from food because otherwise if you add in extra cardio, Sometimes, like Jack said, it makes them more fatigued and then other components of their day, they might just expend less energy. And also, yeah, it really depends on the client because time management is a huge thing, especially for people who like have a job that like working a nine to five job. Plus, they have to get in their training session that day, too. And, you know, they want to have a bit of a life as well. If you're prescribing like maybe like three to five or six cardio sessions on top of their daily steps on top of everything else. And those cardio sessions are going for anywhere between half an hour to an hour. That's something that they have to add in as well. So it, that can really put a stress on people's lives too. And sometimes people even fall into the situation of where they actually cut their sleep short so that they can wake up earlier to do their cardio, where in the long term, if they were getting a better quality night's sleep, they'd probably actually burn more energy throughout the entire day overall, and they wouldn't actually need to do that additional cardio. So really use it as a tool, I would say. But Sometimes, you know, it just is necessary, especially with 
uh, girls in particular, small females who, when they need to cut weight and get very lean for a show, and their calories do get very low, so I'm talking 1,500 and below, and as a coach, you just don't want to drop calories any lower than that, and there is room to expend extra energy through cardio, and they can fit that into their schedule too, then yes, that would be a viable option. And I think a lot of it comes down to how prepared you are and how much time you give yourself for the prep. If you're racing towards the finish line and you've really had to drop calories and increase cardio in order to uh, lose weight at an adequate pace compared to having a more controlled rate of weight loss and starting about 20 to 25 weeks out in an already relatively lean state, then you'll find that you'll end up doing significantly less cardio in the latter option compared to yeah, racing towards uh, the stage day. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So that really just reinforces the importance of planning ahead, giving yourself time so that you can have a more enjoyable prep and you don't have to take any crazy drastic measures. And yeah, it really is just a myth that you have to do cardio for weight loss because I know that some people just think as, as soon as they hear fat loss, they think Stairmaster or treadmill or elliptical or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact of the matter is there are a hell of a lot of different ways to burn calories. And honestly, you're going to be burning calories every second of every minute of every day anyway, just from your body, you know, maintaining homeostasis and also just from your basal metabolic rate and resting metabolic rate. So you're always burning calories. Mm. So we'll move on to the next question, which is by Helen. And she asks, when does a bikini competitor know they need to go next level fitness? Mm. So this is actually a really good question. And it's probably something that a lot of female competitors will run into at some point in their training career. I guess what we should first point out is, is that the biggest difference between bikini and the fitness division is probably the level of leanness that is required. For ICN. Yeah, for ICN, for sure. And also other federations too, like WBFF and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's probably the level of leanness, but also the level of muscularity too. So I guess a good indication that you will be or you can move up to the next division, it's really going to be subjective. So it is going to be based off judges' feedback. It's going to be based off feedback from your coach, feedback from others around you, and just how your body is responding to training. So during an improvement season, are you hyper responding to the resistance training and are you able to put on more lean muscle mass? And also, even when you're in, in your improvement season, can you still see a good amount of muscle definition? So for example, when you're doing leg extension or something like that, can you actually see you know small separations in your quadriceps? Or when you're doing lateral raises, can you see slight like striations in your deltoids, things like that. So when you can actually see your body putting on more muscle, then that's a pretty good indication that you can probably consider moving up to the next division, which is awesome in my case. Like my main goal when I compete with ICN again next year is to move up to the fitness division because I competed in bikini last time. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add on that. I think that if you're a female and training uh, with evidence-based training and eating enough as well for two to three years, I think you could probably move into fitness Mm -hmm. as a very, very rough estimation. 
Yeah, exactly. But, you know, really get ex- like get advice and get feedback from the experts. So like we said before, the judges and your coach will be really, really good. Mm. Yeah, because I think everyone knows that we're our own harshest critic in most circumstances. So it's not always going to be the most accurate to look at your own physique through your own eyes. So because we're always quite, it is a very subjective matter. Yeah, and it can go both ways, you know, like before I competed for the first time, I thought that I would, I had enough muscle mass to do the fitness division, but that was probably not true. Uh, For my last show, I definitely did get lean and I probably got marked down in the bikini division because I was a bit too lean for bikini, but I was just in kind of an like an awkward in between because I didn't have enough muscle and I wasn't lean enough to be in the fitness division, but I was a bit too lean to be in the bikini division. So, and it's going to highly depend on the marking criteria for the specific federation because all federations are different and the judges are always looking for different things. So it's going to be very specific to the federation and your body type. And yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer to that. Yep. So the next question is, what is the best temperature of water to drink while training and eating? So this is a pretty interesting question, and I guess maybe it branches from the myth that people used to say, you know, like you have to drink super cold ice water uh, to raise your metabolic rate because your body is going to have to burn more calories to heat up that water. But Man, I really don't think that's true. And I think the main thing is that as long as the water is not boiling hot, okay, and it burns your esophagus and your mouth, and or as long as the water is not freezing cold and you get a brain freeze, the main thing is just like, please just stay hydrated. <laughs> yeah, this is, I would not be hyper-focused on the temperature of your water. So Yeah, you no need to like carry a thermometer around in your bag or anything like that. <laughs> Mm. But yeah, there there really isn't, it really doesn't matter at all, to be honest. And the main factor is that you're drinking enough water and hydrating. And yeah, personally, like, I guess we all have our preferences. Personally, I don't like to drink super cold water while I'm training, prefer it to be room temperature. And, but yeah, that's just more of like a personal preference. Again, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. You might drink a nice cold cup of water on a very hot Australian summer day to cool down. I have a housemate who's like always using the microwave whenever I want to cook oats because he's always heating up his water. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) can you use the kettle, please? (laughs) Or maybe the tap on hot. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But I'm like, dude, I need to cook my oats. And there's only one microwave. (laughs) Cool. Yes, very cool. (laughs) Okay. So this next question was asked by Nina, and she says, athlete you look up to most and why? So who do you look up to, Tiara? Ah, so there's a lot of people in the health and fitness industry that I admire and that I look up to and I find very motivational and very inspiring. But if I had to think of one person, it would probably be Alicia Gowans. And for those who don't know who Alicia is, she's now a three-time reigning world champion in WBFF. She competes in the 35 plus fitness model division. And she's just amazing, honestly. 
Alicia, just her work ethic and her education and the way that she just really cares about her athletes. I think she won coach of the year as well, maybe like two years in a row now as well. But yeah, Alicia has been in this industry for many, many years. She's very well-spoken. She's evidence-based. You know, I just, I think she's really, really fantastic and very inspiring too because she actually broke her back a number of years ago and then to come back from that, pardon the pun, (laughs) uh, to come back from that, you know, and win three world titles. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. Alicia Gowan's really, really amazing. And Jack and I are really hoping to have her on the podcast in hopefully the coming months. That would be super exciting to interview her. And yeah, she also has a podcast herself that I've, they don't really post many episodes anymore, but it was called The Competitive Edge uh, with her and Robbie Frame and also Jared Hustler too. They used to do a podcast together I used to enjoy listening to. And yeah, she's just very well-spoken and yeah, it would be amazing to achieve anything like what she has at some point in my competitive career. So yeah, Jack, is there anyone that comes to mind, you know, when you think about an athlete that you look up to? Yeah, I really admire Alicia as well. And I especially resonate with her story of uh, back pain. She's had chronic pain for a while and she even helped me a little bit. I messaged her on Instagram and obviously she's an incredibly busy person, but she took time out of her day to help me and she recommended a physio for me to see as well. And yeah, which I think is amazing. Yeah, she is just incredible. She's literally, she's got a team of professional athletes all around the world. She travels around the world, you know, as an online coach, but also going to all the WBFF shows and competing, of course, at the world titles. But, oh, it is just amazing. Wow. To be on that level one day. It's pretty incredible, but obviously, you know, she tells her story and how she started, you know, from where Jack and I are today, but you really have to climb the ladder and build your way up. And yeah, I pretty much look up to anyone who practices what they preach. So it doesn't really have to have a specific age range or experience or competitiveness level. So people who are younger than me or vastly older than me, so like for example, Brandon Kempter, even people who are similar age like uh, Lawrence, General Muscle on Instagram, they all just enjoy the lifestyle. They love bodybuilding and yeah, it pushes me to go further as well. So this next question says, thoughts on green tea as a natural fat burner. So what do you think? <laughs> so ultimately green tea has fat burning properties, but it's one, it's not bioavailable enough and it's not in enough concentration to be any sort of benefit at all, really. Yeah, so green tea has this type of phytochemical in it called catechins. Now, catechins have shown to, you know, have some health benefits such as they can help lower LDL cholesterol, they can help dilate your blood vessels as well. And also they have been marketed as a fat burner. I think on a cellular level, they might induce a very, very, very small of increased oxidation of fatty acids within the body. But at the same time, this is not significant. I think Mm. you could probably do a couple of steps and burn more than the yeah, green tea. Yeah, literally. I think they did a study once. Uh, I Don't quote me on these numbers, but I think it was in Japan because in Japan they drink a lot of green tea. But I think something like 10 cups of green tea a day equated to an extra 
50 to 100 calories burned or something like that. So it is not significant at all. And yeah, I would just say enjoy green tea in moderation, just like everything enjoyed in moderation. It's similar to like, you know, um, turmeric, right? So turmeric has this component in it called curcumin and curcumin has antioxidant properties within it. But that doesn't mean that you need to be eating a bunch of turmeric all day or popping like curcumin pills or anything like that because it really does interfere with homeostasis and hormesis as well because, you know, there's always a sweet spot where you hit a certain threshold and you'll get maximum benefit from that. So in the case of drinking green tea, you know, having maybe a cup or two of green tea per day, like, yeah, that's great. You know, it's a nice little healthy food, but there's a hell of a lot of healthy foods. So you don't have to drink 10 or 20 cups of green tea per day. And also you'll see these um, products marketed like green tea X50, and it can actually be very, very dangerous, especially for liver health because green tea X50, because it's so high in catechins and also just has such a huge antioxidant properties, when we ingest that, it can actually have very detrimental downstream effects on liver health. And I remember when Jack and I were in second year uni, there was actually a case where this guy, um, he was taking this green tea X50 product and it actually caused such significant liver damage that his liver was failing. He had liver failure and he needed to get uh, a liver transplant. But because it was like so immediate and, you know, you have to go on a waiting list for organ transplants, he either had the choice to either die or he had to get a liver transplant, but that liver had hepatitis B. So it's, it's really not good. And taking really high antioxidants, guys, is just not a good idea. And I guess this is probably a good point to touch on as well. Vitamin C is a huge one. So vitamin C, honestly, the RDI for vitamin C is like 80 to 100 milligrams per day. And you can honestly get that through like one piece of fruit. So like one orange, right? But you'll see these of like products marketed like 500 milligram or 1000 milligram vitamin C tablets. And a lot of comp prep competitors will promote these like, oh, they're candies during comp prep, you know, eat all of this vitamin C. But the thing is, is that if you're taking super high dose antioxidants, that actually interferes with muscle growth because when we are lifting weights, we're causing oxidative stress and that oxidative stress is actually a signal for our bodies to induce more muscle growth. But if we take really high doses of exogenous antioxidants such as vitamin C tablets, then that actually blunts those effects and it can reduce the amount of muscle growth. And it has also been shown in endurance athletes to reduce VO2 max adaptations too. So I can't stress enough, please, there's no need to take vitamin C tablets and please don't be popping them like Smarties during comp prep. And like you are trying so hard to grow muscle and to maintain your muscle. You really don't want to interfere with that. Yeah, a little bit of oxidative stress in the body is actually a really, really good thing. So yeah, but at the same time, I'm not saying like, you know, if you are eating a bunch of vitamin C tablets that you're going to lose all of your muscle. There's nothing like that, <laughs> but I'm just saying there's no need to supplement.
So another way to look at it as well is that vitamin C is a exogenous antioxidant, which means it comes from outside the body and the body does not produce it. And when you do have super high doses of exogenous antioxidants, it will suppress your own body's endogenous production of antioxidants. And obviously, so like an endogenous antioxidant will be glutathione and obviously it's not ideal to suppress your own body's production of these antioxidants because obviously they are important for reducing oxidative stress and inflammation and free radicals and etc and i guess it's actually comparable to taking exogenous performance enhancing drugs as well because when you take something like testosterone it does actually reduce your own uh, natural production of that hormone yeah and then exactly and then once you stop taking it exogenously then endogenously you're not producing it anymore and you run into troubles mm. yes we did just <laughs> compare vitamin c and green tea to testosterone that's correct <laughs> Okay, so this next question, I got a few of these on Instagram and it was actually related to grip strength and it was tips for how to increase your grip strength. And the reason why I got these is because when I do, I do dumbbell RDLs and I've always been quite good at them and I can hold like 35 kilograms each hand and I don't use chalk and I don't use, I just can't get my like I can't get the hang of straps. Jack has tried to help me, but the straps just keep slipping. I don't it's know. It's straps fault, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> I'm blaming the straps. A, a poor workman blames his tools. A poor bodybuilder blames her straps. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I can't get the hang of straps. Anyway, so I, I just hold dumbbells barehanded, but I can, I, I can hold on to them. And it's the same for barbells too. So I've never really thought about it before, but I guess I do have pretty good grip strength. But yeah, a, a lot firm of handshake. Yes, super firm. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of girls were asking me, you know, like, how do you hold on to dumbbells that heavy? Like my hands always slip and it can be very frustrating because, you know, your hamstrings are strong enough in a movement like an RDL, but you just can't hold on to dumbbells or you can't hold on to a barbell. So, so how did you increase your grip strength? <laughs> Well, I guess it's just been accumulative over my entire life and it really got me thinking about it. But I think a huge component of it is actually working at the UQ gym for a number of years. And, you know, as a staff member on the gym floor, I'm always cleaning up after uni students who just throw their plates around like confetti. And so I'm always picking up, you know, like... It's pretty strong. <laughs> Yeah, you should see the people at UQ Gym, man. <laughs> chucking weights all over the place. I would hate to see some of these people's bedrooms. I swear to God, it would just be a mess. Um, anyway, you know, you walk around and you're always picking up dumbbells and plates and stuff like that and carrying them for long distances to re-rack them. So I just, just guess over the years that kind of accumulated. But also maybe when I was really young, I used to do a hell of a lot of monkey bars as a kid. I was a monkey <laughs> and maybe that's why I love bananas so much now but yeah and I I have had calluses on my hands you know that have really toughened up my entire life but probably the main thing is it's just specificity and if you want to get better at something too you just have to do it more often so you just have to really try to persist with your barbell lifts and just with your heavy dumbbell work as well and eventually I think that your hands just will really freaking toughen up what, what would you say for increasing grip strength? Uh, my piece of advice would be just to use straps. 
But what if you're like me, man, and you can't? You like the straps think, don't I work. I think you're an exception, and I think if you think about it, like your goal is to build your hamstrings in an RDL, like. So, and if your grip strength is the limiting factor, then just use straps or try and use something that will be able to, even using like um, Versa grips or gloves or straps or anything that can... Chalk really helps. Mm. So, yeah, I think, yeah, like, because especially as a male as well, once you, like for me, once I go above like um, three plates in the RDL, like there's no way I can hold on um, for like more than five or six reps. Yeah, just let's go. <laughs> no, but I, I know I need to try to keep persisting with straps because I know that my hamstrings are still stronger than, you know, to lift with 35 kilogram RDLs. And it can be frustrating, you know, sometimes when a dumbbell slips out of your hand and you're like, damn it, I knew I had an extra rep or two there. So, but also like I saw this thing on Jeff Nippard's Instagram lately where he actually was demonstrating all of these exercises for increasing grip strength because he did some sort of workout with like Canadians best arm wrestlers and I never thought about that but obviously arm wrestlers would need to have very very good grip strength but they were literally just doing things like just picking up plates and picking up dumbbells up and down and like trying to flip plates around and yeah, I guess you could probably also do things like farmer's walks. So just literally pick up two really, really heavy dumbbells and just like walk around the gym and kind of like waddle around like a duck maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other ideas? or? Uh, yeah, I would just say what Tierra summarized saying like just over time, you'll find that your grip strength improves and farmer's walk can definitely help. But ultimately, I think... I don't think it's realistic to train just for your grip grip strength. Like I yeah, think that you have to think about the bigger picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I would I would just use straps or some sort of other accessory to uh, to help me. I really wanted to, because in a lot of studies they test people's strength by do, using the grip strength tool. I actually really want to see what my um, mm. what my results would be on that if I'm stronger than all the old people that they test. <laughs> Because mm. grip strength is very important for... Well, it's a, one of the key determinants for old age and stuff. Yeah. For deterioration. Mm-hmm. All right. So this next question is by Amy Noodle. And she asks, how would you advise girls mentally after competition? So in terms of post-comp, I think the most important thing is to have a plan and really speak to your coach and speak with other people who have competed before and really just know what to expect because if you go into it blindfolded, it probably can be really, really tough. So you really need to have a plan and you really need to be very accepting of what is going to happen. So obviously you're no longer going to be dieting and you're no longer going to be getting significantly leaner and your calories are going to be increased and you are going to see your body change and you just need to be prepared for that. And as long as you approach it in an evidence-based manner and you have a good mindset towards it, it's going to be okay because, you know, look at the positive side of things. You get to eat more food. You get to be more energized. When you go into the gym, you're probably going to have much better sessions. You're going to be able to start to hit more PBs as well. You're going to be able to do more volume and have longer training sessions too. You're just going to really enjoy training 
and you're going to be able to push your body to new limits. And also, if you do that in conjunction with a diet that is sustainable and also is providing you with enough energy and in a slight energy surplus, you have a really damn good chance of putting on some new muscle mass, which is just going to look awesome. And also, you know, in those few weeks post-comp when you're very lean, but then when you increase your calories and you're eating a lot more carbohydrates and you're training really hard, to be honest, that's going to be the best you've probably ever looked because you're still quite lean, but you look very full and you just feel so goddamn good because you've got energy again. But yeah, the main thing is, is just accept that your body is going to change and just have a plan and really just speak to someone about it too. Yeah, so don't go into it blindfolded and just have a good plan for your improvement season moving forward and set little goals. Set what you want, like what do you want to achieve in the future and what do you want to start working towards? And that's going to really keep you on track and remind you why you're going through that next phase. How would you, like, because that's for a girl, Jack, how would you advise a guy entering post-comp period? Well, I was actually just going to touch on the girl as well and say that a lot of it comes down to health and uh, in increasing your calories to maintenance and putting on weight is going to be vital for getting to a more realistic body fat percentage for a female and also increasing your hormones again as well. So and gaining your cycle back. And- yeah, I, I forgot to mention that too, regaining your menstrual cycle because a lot of girls will lose their menstrual cycle during a contest preparation. It's pretty much almost unavoidable in a lot of circumstances. And yeah, for girls and guys, there's everyone just has different mindsets. So even just the short period we've been working with competitors and from ourselves, like there are going to be some people that are going to get to it straight away. They're already thinking about the next season. They're tracking. They don't even have like a, a off weekend, um, <clears throat> Tierra. Um, and <laughs> they basically get straight back into things. And yeah, they don't go, they don't eat an untracked meal. And then there'll be people who gain like, Uh, quite a lot of weight in the first weekend and like definitely enjoy yourself that weekend but again from a health perspective it's not going to be ideal to to gain an excessive amount of weight in a short period it's better to do it controlled and with a plan using evidence-based numbers and nutrition all that sort of stuff yeah i couldn't agree more i think a huge component of it is really having a plan with your training because you know people talk a lot about nutrition and obviously increasing your calories so that you're in a slight surplus but make sure that you have a solid training program down that you can stick to and that you're excited to start to pursue and work on because that's going to be very very motivating for you to start training harder and really like hitting new numbers in the gym that's really going to help keep you on track a lot of like i want i don't want to say a lot of people but there are some people who you know want to take a complete break they just feel really really burnt out after comp and you know some people just want to take a complete break from the gym like an entire month off and like each to their own that's perfect that that's fine if that's what you want to do and if if that's what your body you know needs to do to recover but just try to be smart about your nutrition still enjoy your food but just try to hold yourself accountable for you your nutrition and just be smart about your choices if you know that you're not in the gym anymore and you're not expending that same amount of energy yeah Okay. So the next question is muscle soreness 
an indication of growth. So, do you think that you need to be sore in order to indicate that your muscles are growing? No, is the short answer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and why? <laughs> so, the reason why is, so DOMS is basically muscle soreness, delayed onset muscle soreness, and essentially DOMS are related to a new stimulus and not necessarily a ind- indicative of hypertrophy. So, Say if you, that's why when you first come back to training after a deload or after a break, you're always incredibly sore because it's a new stimulus again. But say if you do, if, even if you do barbell bench press every session, it doesn't mean it's unlikely you're going to be getting sore, to be honest, just because it's not a new stimulus. Or if you're, that's why if you stick to a normal training program and have set volume for each session and use evidence-based sets and reps, then you shouldn't be getting excessively sore. So like I'll usually get sore maybe like for example I got sore from my blood flow restriction training because it's a very new stimulus for me and but for example I don't I actually rarely get sore from my leg days and from my standard upper days now. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. It's really just about when you perform unaccustomed exercise, so exercise you're just not used to and especially eccentric movements. So eccentric means the extending part of the movement when the muscle is stretching so movements that have like a very large eccentric component so for example think of something like an rdl where you're really really stretching your hamstrings a lot of people will experience muscle soreness due to that very large eccentric component of the movement but again at the same time it's usually only if you're super unaccustomed to it too or if you were, even if you're accustomed to the exercise, but one day you might do a much heavier set, you know, or really, really test yourself, then yes, you are challenging homeostasis and you might become more sore too. Pretty interesting though, with eccentric damage, when you actually extend muscle fibers and you cause that uh, damage to them, it actually interferes with the GLUT4 receptors in those muscles. And unfortunately, when you're actually really, really sore in a muscle group, the body is actually less efficiently able to resynthesize and store glycogen in that muscle because you've actually damaged some of the cell receptors. I always thought that was really interesting from learning when we learned that in exercise physiology because it's almost like almost counterintuitive for the body because you're like, damn it, this muscle is actually really sore and it needs energy and it needs a fuel source in order to recover. But because you've actually stretched that muscle and damaged those cell receptors, you actually can't adequately uh, restore glycogen. So I always thought that was a little bit counterintuitive by the body. (laughs) But yeah, I guess bottom hand is no, you don't need to be sore. But at the same time, uh, like, it's not you know, bad if you're sore and yeah, there'll often, often be fatigue associated with like, I would be questioning you a little bit if you weren't fatigued after your session the next mm-hmm. day, but just because you aren't sore, you don't have to chase a soreness the same way in a workout. You don't always have to chase a pump. Like a pump again, isn't always indicative of muscle growth. Um, like obviously doing a more metabolic style, uh, exercise like say bicep curls for uh, 30 reps it's going to give you a pump but it doesn't mean you're going to get a massive pump from say squats 
like five to six reps of squats. Yeah, I think that you should just at least know that you trained yesterday kind of thing. So if you trained lower body yesterday, and even if you're not sore today, you shouldn't still feel like, man, I could hit that exact same session again. You know, like if you stretch, you know, if you do a quad stretch or something, you should be able to feel a little bit of tightness and be like, okay, I know I did squats or I know I did leg press yesterday kind of thing. So yeah, if you want like real a really good podcast recommendation for training, I'd highly recommend Revive Stronger, especially all the episodes that he does with Mike Isertel. Mike Isertel goes into really, really great depth on training and questions like this. So if you want, head over there. Revive Stronger is an awesome podcast for all things evidence-based training. All right, so I think we're coming up on time now. So what we're going to do is finish with our very last question of the day. And that is one thing that we learned this week. So something I learned this week is Tiara and I are in the midst of looking for places to rent. Yay! (laughs) So we'll we'll be moving in together, which is exciting, uh, probably by the end of this year. And we'll have like a home business set up and we both can't wait for that. And word on the town is we might even be getting a dog. <laughs> uh, uh, whoever can guess the our dream dog gets a prize. <laughs> a shout out on the next podcast. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so there's actually more things to consider than I thought. So if anyone can give us some advice on what's helped them when they're renting a house, because um, we're looking for a house that would be much appreciated. Mm. So, yeah, so a new a, experience. A call out to all real estate agents <laughs> who love bodybuilding dietitian podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I can't wait. That's so exciting. Uh, all right. So quickly, one thing that I learned this week. So recently, the new monthly edition of Mass has come out. I speak about Mass like all the time, which is the monthly application in strength sports. So one of the papers that they released this month was looking at EMG activation of the prime movers during a bench press. So the prime movers would be obviously your pecs, your deltoids, and your triceps. And what they were doing is they were looking at whether essentially you got better activation and more recruitment of muscle fibers within these muscles when you were lifting a weight with your feet on the ground which is a pretty traditional, you know, bench press like position where you can have leg drive and everything and a slight arch in your back, or if you were on a bench and your feet were up. And what they actually found was that when individuals were using the exact same weight, they actually got better activation in those muscles when their feet were up, which I thought was super interesting. And it it pretty much makes sense because if you don't have your feet on the ground and you have less leg drive and also you'd probably have um, less of an arch in your back so your back would be more flat on the bench, you would have to recruit more fibers from those muscles in order to push the weights up. And also, Greg, who actually wrote the review on this paper, made a good point that you'd also have a greater range of motion as well. And essentially, I thought that was pretty cool. And 
So pretty much if you were to do any sort of like accessory work for bench or if you were trying to recover from an injury and you wanted to use a slightly lighter weight, what you can do is put your feet up on the bench. And you've probably even seen some people doing this in the gym before, but put your feet up on the bench and you'll actually get slightly better activation and recruitment from the muscle fibers in those muscle groups. So I thought that was pretty cool. But at the same time, if you are going for like a 1RM bench, please put your feet on the ground because like at that time, the leg drive is really, really going to help you hit higher numbers. So really only having your feet up on the bench is more for just accessory work and just slightly lighter work, probably just with dumbbells. I don't know if you'd necessarily want to use a barbell, but obviously you can, but you just have to go a little bit lighter. But yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. All right, so I guess that is the end of our 34th episode. Awesome. So that was a great Q&A, and thanks to everyone who asked a question. We'll most likely do another one next week, so keep an eye out for our question polls. So if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it to your stories, tag myself, tag Tiara, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.